In this episode of 2000 Books, Dr. Liz Dunn talks about five scientifically proven ways to maximize happiness by spending money the right way. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs every single week. And I'm your host and former computer engineer turned entrepreneur, Manny Vaya. So these days, people often ask me, Manny, you've read over a thousand books now. What is it? What is that one most important success lesson you've learned from all these books? What separates the successful from everyone else? So I decided to create a free video course to show you exactly what that number one ingredient of success is and how anyone can develop it. You can get it for free at 2000books.com slash success. That's 2000books.com slash success. Dr. Liz Dunn is a professor of psychology at University of British Columbia who conducts experimental research on self-knowledge and happiness. Today, we're talking about her book, Happy Money, which details the five core elements of spending money to maximize happiness. Liz, I'm really excited to have you on the show and talk about this really important topic. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk about this topic because I found it rhymes with the way I see the world. And not only that, I feel that as entrepreneurs, it's really important for us to, for us to understand why we're trying so hard to make our money, why, you know, no matter how ambitious we are and no matter how much money we make, we got to be careful and we have to make sure we're relating and understanding how that money actually buys or gets us happiness. So let's talk about that. And let's talk about your journey. What was your professional journey and what led you to writing this book? Uh, so I started out early on in uh, my research career doing work on happiness. And um, uh, then something happened when I took my first job, which is that I actually started making money. So after kind of five years of living pretty close to the poverty line as a graduate student, I got my first real faculty job and started making like a normal adult income. And for me, having, you know, been on this very meager graduate stipend for so long, Having a regular income was like becoming instantly wealthy. And so I wondered, you know, what, what do I do with all this money? Um, and so I got really curious about how people could use their money most effectively in order to promote happiness. And so I started um, doing studies to explore this question. And I discovered that there was actually surprisingly little research out there on this topic. Um, and so it was a really exciting area to, to begin to explore. Yeah. And of course, you are now teaching at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Yes, right. Yeah. So that's where you've been conducting the research. Um, let's talk about it. The first idea that you talk about, which is fascinating to me, is we need, you know, it's much better to invest in experiences than to invest in stuff. And uh, as we were talking in the pre-interview, this is something that I have instinctively uh, kind of had it in the back of my head as to the way I spend money. But when you conceptualized it and you explained it in the book, it totally struck home with me. I was like, yes, makes complete sense. What What's going on? Why is it that buying experiences or investing experiences is way more important than investing in stuff? 
well, when we buy experiences by taking a special trip or going up for a special meal or going to that you know amazing concert, um, obviously it provides us with some happiness in the moment. But I think what's sort of particularly surprising is that the emotional benefits of experiences actually seem to grow over time. So um, they, when we reflect on those uh, past experiences, they feel those experiences feel like money well spent. So we tend to um, integrate those experiences into our self-concept. So people's past experiences tend to uh, kind of seem like an, an important part of their life story in a way that most material things just aren't. So if you think about, you know, what's the uh, one of your favorite trips that you've ever been on, you probably see how that kind of contributed to the kind of person that you are today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In contrast, if you think about like, the nicest shirt you bought or something, it's unlikely to have the same impact on mm -hmm. how you see yourself as a person. Yeah, absolutely. I can't even remember the nicest shirt I bought, but I can remember all my trips, all my amazing trips. And as you say in the book, they define who I am. Like they define who we are as human beings. So sometimes uh, <clears throat> these experiences add up to make our identity. And we we attach to them much more than we attach to stuff, which over time loses its excitement, its satisfaction level, right? Right. And part of the problem with material things is that they get old, other people start to get nicer things. And so we can feel some uh, buyer's remorse about the things that we bought because it's so easy to compare them to the newest thing that's out there, the newest thing your friend just got. And uh, so in contrast, experiences kind of seem unique. Experiences are fundamentally ours. And even when we see some that they might have had some negative aspects, often we feel that we wouldn't necessarily want to even go back and change those things because as you said they contribute to our overall life story yeah we remember them way after way long after they were they happened like i can remember some of the most profound experiences that i've spent money on and uh, like time and energy on on basically buying those things and for me one of my fundamental values is learning and growth so anytime i go to an event where uh, or conference or a seminar where i'm going to learn stuff those are things i remember forever but Money spent on stuff is uh, something that is really hard to even put a timeline to. Like, when did I buy that or what? Like, those things don't really have as much of a pull in my life or in the way even I, the way I even conceptualize my life. That's exactly right. I mean, I think sometimes material things can get an overly bad rap. So, you know, I think it is important to recognize that, like, a really comfortable pair of shoes versus a terrible, uncomfortable pair of shoes can like change our experience in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's just that when you look back, you're probably not going to reflect on the like importance to your life of those comfortable shoes. So the, the benefits of experiences actually seem to grow over time. So they become sort of more important to us as we look back on them. And what's really interesting about that is that we might often think about, you know, going on a fancy trip or something like that as being throwing money away compared to more long-term investment like buying a couch. Um, but in fact, you know, what research suggests is almost the opposite, that over time we'll come to value those experiences above and beyond those material things. Yeah. And one thing you said was really uh, very interesting. You said that the length of the experience does not matter. That's something I was like, I was searching in my database, going back, trying to figure out why which one? Yes, no. And I, I, I realized that's so true because one time I went bungee jumping 
uh, in South Padre Islands in Texas. And I am sure I will never remember, I will never forget that moment because it was so nerve wracking, but at the same time, one of the most uh, liveliest moments as well. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can kind of understand where you're coming from there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it's useful to consider, you know, if you're planning, say, do you take a two week vacation to Florida or a four day vacation, but you get to go somewhere more exciting and exotic, right? So mm. on the one hand, that the being somewhere for seven days will give you more pleasure in the moment. So, you know, we certainly wouldn't want to argue that those three days, th- those three additional days have no value, because obviously, you know, those three extra days you spend sitting in the sun are going to be pleasurable. Um, but in terms of the long term takeaway where, you know, how much do you think back on that experience? If you do something that really stretches who you are as a person, that builds unique memories and that brings you together with people you care about, that's likely to sort of continue to provide you with this emotional reward. So if you think about Mm. kind of emotional return on investment, it's likely to be greater for that shorter, but more sort of profound, life-changing, more deeply connecting experience. Yeah, that's the key right there. The fact that it has to be a little different in the sense it has to stretch our being for us to actually be able to enjoy that experience much more or to be able to remember it much more and to, to get happiness out of it. Mm-hmm. can also think about, you know, what's going to make a good story, right? So I sat by a pool in the sunshine and drank margaritas for seven days doesn't make a great story unless you really had too many margaritas and something happened after. Um, so in contrast, you know, doing something where you're really pushing your limits and where things get a little crazy and you, you know, see these really new things or discover new stuff about yourself. That's where like some interesting stories tend to come into play. And part of the value of experiences is that, you know, they make, make good stories in contrast, you know, nobody wants to hear a story about your marble countertops. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because you know as as I continue to think about this topic, it's it's, and I think a lot of entrepreneurship to me or a lot of starting the business. I left a very cushy job to do this now mm-hmm. to do my business, and starting a business is painful. It's frustrating. It is challenging. It's all of those things, but it is it makes me a different. It makes me a bigger human being. It makes me so much more than what I was. In that job, I could have continued to stay on and made more money and buy more stuff. But starting a business has forced me to become someone different. It has forced a new experience on me. Mm-hmm. I think you can think of starting a business as investing in experiences. Yes. <laughs> cool. That's, that's pretty awesome. All right. So the next idea that you had was the idea of making that experience a treat or buying something like uh, and treating it as if it's a treat as if it's something special and not necessarily not treating as it's just another thing right right so the idea here is that whatever we have we tend to get used to it Mm -hmm. so um you know you might think that it would be great to have just an abundance of all of the things that you like Mm -hmm. but unfortunately the human happiness system um is highly adaptable so whatever you sort of have all the time, you'll tend to get used to. And so um, we argue that it can be better actually to take a break from the things that you like best. You can actually sort of re-virginize yourself and uh, enjoy, renew your capacity for enjoyment by taking a break from the things that you really like. Yeah. So so let me let me recollect, uh, recollect an experience from my life. There. And it's not like something I've 
just done once. I've done it a few times. So when I go back to India to see my parents, uh, one of the things I'll do sometimes is I'll tell them a date when I'm leaving, though it's not really the date. So it'll be like a few days before it. So I'll be saying, I'll tell them, hey, I'm leaving on that day. And they'll get ready. Everyone's ready. They'll even drop me off at the airport. And then I'll come back home. And it creates a completely new experience. It, it almost it's like a new treat all over again. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating. It works. And it's like, I now I don't know if I'm messing around with them. But I feel like I get two vacations out for the price of one. You know, that's a fun trick because um, there's evidence showing that when an ending is approaching, so when you know like the trip's not going to last very, very long, so your parents think you're about to leave, um, people tend to really appreciate what they've got because it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I've got to make the most of it. And so in a way, it's like you're giving people two endings, like yes. two times to really uh, appreciate it. Now, of course, if they're like, you know, in tears and so miserable because you're leaving and you're doing that to them twice, I don't know. But um, if it's just like a little bit of renewed appreciation, then that's probably a good idea. And the funny thing is, even I go through that, even though I know it's not happening, I go through that process somehow in my brain, like I'm already <laughs> wired, I'm thinking that I'm leaving, I'm leaving. So I'm like getting all nervous. I'm getting all like uh, panicky or not panicky, but like I'm, I'm, I'm feeling those feelings that my parents are going through in that moment. And then I get to, you know, the next time again, I go to go, go through these things. Well, and it really is possible to sort of trick ourselves into feeling that something that we like uh, is limited, right? So, um, for example, um, you know, all of us have kind of unlimited access to, to chocolate, for example, mm-hmm. right? Like you can you know, chocolate's so readily available and, and cheap, you could buy as much of it as you wanted. Um, but we can kind of impose limits on ourselves and kind of decide, okay, you know what, I'm only going to have one, um, or I'm not going to have any chocolate this week. Uh, and so uh, even though, of course, it is available around you, just telling yourself, I'm not going to have any more any chocolate this week can make you appreciate, you know, the chocolate mousse that you're having right now. Absolutely. That's so true. So true. And you also talked about the idea that commercials can improve our TV watching experience because they put a break into the monotony of it sometimes, right? Yeah. So the idea here is that um, whatever sort of pleasurable experience we're having, we get used to it. And so interrupting that experience for a little bit can uh, bring us back to that sort of starting point, helping us to appreciate it again. Now, this really applies particularly particularly to experiences that are enjoyable, but somewhat monotonous. So this Mm -hmm. is sort of like watching a really beautiful nature documentary on the BBC or something where it's really nice to see all of the beautiful whales, but eventually you're like, oh yeah, huge, amazing animals, and you're not fully taking it in anymore. And that's where having that little break can be helpful. In contrast with other shows where, you know, there's a lot of fast-paced action and they're sort of introducing the adaptation for you by switching between characters and, um, you know, changing scenes rapidly, then it's not as necessary so then you can go ahead and binge watch it on netflix without commercials and probably still get as much enjoyment out of it so one of my favorite shows is seinfeld and i have dvds sitting in my living room of seinfeld but i find it that i get a lot more joy out of watching the reruns that run on television at certain times because i build this anticipation and also because these commercials are breaking that i i did not know that until i just until i read that i was like wow fascinating no wonder I don't pop in those DVDs. I just like to watch the reruns. 
right? So there's something surprisingly pleasurable about something popping up unexpectedly and then getting those little interruptions that, again, makes you appreciate the, you know, entertaining jokes when they come back on. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. All right. Another great idea you talk about, which is buying time. Now, of course, none of us can buy time, but we can trade what we have for for the time available to us and um, t- tell us about it like when when we're when we're when we have more uh, i would say leisure time available to us we are better off like we have happier um happier lives is that is that the way to put it well, so the idea is I think most of us recognize that uh, financial affluence is a good thing. So entrepreneurs, of course, all want to, you know, be successful, do well financially. And indeed, you know, having more money is related to being happier, but only up to a point. And in fact, it turns out that one of the reasons why having a lot of money doesn't always produce a lot of happiness is that often material affluence comes at the expense of what we call time affluence. So um, you may not have a lot of time affluence if you feel that that, you know, there are never enough minutes in the day, your life has been too rushed, you're always pressed for time. And feeling this lack of time affluence can have almost as big a negative effect on happiness as having a lack of material affluence. So um, one thing that's really fascinating is that the more your time is worth financially, the more likely you are to feel pressed for time. Mm. Um, And this is because when um, something is very valuable, it tends to be perceived as scarce. Um, And so, you know, we can think conversely, when something's scarce, it tends to be perceived as valuable. So there's this kind of bi-directional, really well-learned relationship that we all have between scarcity and value, right? Mm -hmm. When something is scarce, it's valuable. And and also when it's uh, valuable, it tends to be perceived as scarce. So as time becomes worth more money, people tend to feel like they don't have enough of it. And so I think this is a particularly important point for entrepreneurs to recognize that as they become more and more successful, they're likely to feel increasingly pressed for time, for both you know objective reasons and also for more psychological reasons, um, and so um, what we argue is that we should think about using money in ways that will give us more time or give us better time. Mm. And in fact, what we've seen in some of our newest work is that people who use money to buy themselves more free time tend to be happier. And we find this effect in countries around the world. And in a brand new experiment that we just finished, we see that people who are given some money and told to use it to buy themselves time, end up feeling happier that day um, compared to people who are given the same amount of money and told it told to buy a material thing for themselves. Um, so what all of this is telling us is that people who prioritize time over money seem to end up better off in terms of their happiness. And so I think there's a need to sometimes recalibrate ourselves as we get more money to sort of stop and say, okay, have I traded too much of my time for money? Do I need to pull back a little bit and think about using some of my money to buy better time? Right. So using some of our money to buy better time. And that could, when you say, you know, people were given money and they could buy time. An example of that, from my perspective as an entrepreneur would be, you know, spending on hiring someone to do some of the things that I do, delegating a lot of the work that I don't like doing, but I feel like, oh, I need to do it. Or I feel myself forced. I think there's a challenge that many of us face where, you know, we feel like because I could do it, I should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, and, you know, it might even be financially wise to do things yourself because you save money on staff or whatever. But if it's the least 
enjoyable part of your day, then our research would suggest you'd be better off even taking a little bit of a hit financially to eliminate those sort of worst minutes of your day. Yeah, it's 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 powerful because you know there as an entrepreneur sometimes the whole day is available to work. And that means you have no boundaries. Well, and more and more now I profess that we need to have boundaries in order to be able to work productively. But, you know, you you could think that, hey, instead of paying that guy $30 to do this, I can spend my time between $9, 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. to do this. And you can be on this rat race, on this wheel, this hamster wheel forever because you're constantly saving yourself some money in the process. That's right. And I think sometimes people tell themselves, well, you know, maybe I should do this myself so that like I'm making more money and that'll be good for my family. But in fact, when people feel stressed out in terms of time, that actually has carryover effects that can negatively affect their families. Um, so, you know, you might actually be better off paying somebody to uh, do some of those more unpleasant tasks for you so that you then have that evening time to have as quality time with family members. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of us, uh, a lot of people get stuck in this rat race of like buying stuff, buying bigger house, bigger cars for their family and uh, their kids. But in that process, they have to stay away from them all the time. And hence, they really miss out on what they are trying to actually accomplish in the first place, which is to make their families better in some ways, their family lives better. I think a common trade-off that people face in terms of thinking about time and money is, you know, do I live closer to work in a smaller place or farther from work in a bigger place? And um, our research would suggest that, you know, trading, uh, that that spending a lot of time commuting seems to be a real downer for well-being. In fact, going from having no commute to having a one-hour commute has an equivalent negative effect on happiness as becoming unemployed. Um, so uh, that, you know, taking that long commute in order to have a big house is probably not a good idea in terms of happiness. People would be better off thinking, oh, you know, this big house is beautiful and it has a great kitchen and all this stuff, but it means that I'm committing to spending two hours of my day driving, which is not usually a good uh, and emotionally rewarding activity for most people. And so they'd be better off, you know, living in that smaller place and eliminating those unpleasant minutes by commuting. Mm-hmm. Makes so much sense. Another thing you said was that uh, when people engage in volunteer activities, they actually, their sense of time expands in the sense they feel like they have more time, even though it's a control group where everyone has the same amount of time, right? Right. And again, this goes back to this idea of this like well-learned association between scarcity and value. So when we, if you think you know, I, I am able to give my time away, then it makes you feel like, well, I must, if I have enough time to give away, then I must have plenty of it, right? Mm. Similarly, you know, giving money away can make you feel like you've got, you must be doing okay, because you're able to give some money away. If you can give some time away, it gives you the sense of, hey, I must be doing okay, because I'm able to give some of this away. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a sense of abundance you get from being able to from the act of being able to give it away, we become, right. we we end up feeling more abundant about it. And exactly, if you have enough to give, it, it sends a message to yourself that hey, I have enough of this. Mm. Powerful. Um, another another uh, another thing you talk about, and uh, that's this French word. So I'm 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 not gonna. I'll try. C'est rougeois. 
you know, it's going to be as good as I could do my French. I have a French co-author who like oh, cringes God. when I try to speak French, but he, I'll try, I'll do my best. He says it so, so way, which again, if he was here, he's like, he would say that that's not at all how he says it because <laughs> my accent is so terrible. Um, but the, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, have you had this experience to Serajouet? Um, yes, absolutely. Serajouet is, uh, something that, um, it's it's a beautiful feeling like it's i'd relish you know i'll i'll buy or let me let me for our listeners let me explain what serajwa stands for or serajwa stands for which is derive, deriving pleasure in the present from a future anticipated activity right and oh yeah it's 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 sometimes better than the real thing Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when one of the great things about the future is that it hasn't happened yet. And so we can make it be whatever we'd like in our minds. Um, so, for example, if you're thinking about, you know, going home to visit your family back in India, there's plenty of things that could go wrong on that trip, you know, flight delays and or, you know, an argument with your family. But you can take all of those away from a future like daydream about how nice it's going to be to go home. Um, and so uh, that's really one of the secrets of getting the most happiness um, from our purchases is to buy them ahead of time mm-hmm. so that we can enjoy that period of like looking forward to this beautiful imagined uh, experience that may not never come to pass in exactly the way you imagine, but at least you got to enjoy imagining that perfect experience. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's... <laughs> <clears throat> it's again something comes uh, for some reason this this conversation seems to be um, uh, I seem to be focused a lot on my trips to India but another another thing that I have done in the past is I surprised my parents with my visits but I found that that was much like even much as exciting as it was it was much better for me to tell them way ahead of time that it's happening so they can build it up so initially, I, was, I, I used to think that surprise was better, but now I've come to believe that anticipation is way better. And I think this is a really interesting trade-off to navigate. It's like, do you go for the extra impact of the surprise or the more sort of long-term experience of enjoying the pleasure of anticipation? And I would argue that really small gestures, like, I don't know, if you um, live in the same town as your family and like make them dinner or something, then it's nice to do that as a surprise because it wouldn't be such a big deal. They probably wouldn't spend weeks looking forward to it um, Mm -hmm. otherwise. But if it's a really big thing that could give them a lot of pleasure in just imagining it, then I think you're robbing them if you don't tell them ahead of time because they they get so much pleasure out of looking forward to it. Yes, yes. I won't rob them anymore. (laughs) All right. So other idea, investing in others. And it's so... It's it's true. There is no no denying it. There's no fighting it. There are people who might believe somehow that they can hoard it all for themselves and somehow take, you know, get joy out of it. But not at all. Your your research and somehow the truth within us also says the same thing that when we spend it on others, when we and there are specific test cases. So I would love for you to tell us about the. You know the the five dollar experiment or the Starbucks experiment, one of those things, because they're 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 revolutionary in the way people can open their minds up about these things. 
Sure. So when I first started thinking about this topic of how to use money to increase happiness, um, I uh, thought, well, probably, you know, one of the best ways to do this might be to use our money to benefit others rather than ourselves. And just to see if there was any truth to this, what we did was uh, we sent our research assistants out on our campus armed with cash. So they literally walked up to people in the morning and handed them either a five or a $20 bill. And they asked everyone to spend the money by the end of the day. Um, but we told half the people to spend the money on themselves. We told the other half to spend it on others. And then we just called everybody back at the end of the day to kind of see how their day was gone and how was going and how they were feeling. And what we found was that people who'd been assigned by the flip of a coin to spend the money on somebody else felt better than people who'd been assigned to spend that money on themselves. And I think, you know, that does fit with this sort of like traditional wisdom. I've literally gotten postcards from people who are, you know, religious and say, you know, I read this in the Bible. I don't need a scientist to come along and tell me this or my mom told me this or whatever. And I respect that. Um, but I would say, um, you know, I think although on some level we we believe that this is true, we don't necessarily apply this idea in thinking about how to spend our money. So in fact, we asked people, you know, would you rather we gave you money to spend on yourself or money to spend on others? And most people tell us, go ahead and give me that money to spend on myself. Thank you very much. Right. So yeah. particularly when it comes to money, in fact, just thinking about money generates this mindset that's very oriented toward um, a kind of me mindset, an idea of wanting self-sufficiency. So if you think about it, if you have a lot of money, you can take care of everything yourself, right? You're moving, you can just hire a moving company. In contrast, if you don't have a lot of money, you've got to depend on others. And so um, when we think about money, it kind of propels us toward this mindset of wanting to do things ourselves and, and not rely on or have other people rely on us. Um, and so uh, what we're trying to do with this research is kind of break through that mindset and remind people, you know, when you have a little bit of extra money, Think about using it to benefit somebody else rather than to benefit yourself. Mm, yeah, yeah. The, it's as you said, it is kind of intuitive, but it's great to know that science is. I mean, the experiments are telling us the same thing. You guys are finding out that it is exactly that. That when we spend on others, it it gives us a lot more joy, a lot more happiness in our lives. And I have seen this time and again. I've seen this time and again. Whether it's spent on friends. Sometimes it's spent on someone I don't even know, or sometimes it's spent on family. It's always, always, always way more fun than just stuffing yourself. Well, and one thing we've, we've discovered recently is that it can even lower blood pressure. So mm -hmm. um, we uh, looked at older adults who were at risk of hypertension, and we found that when we gave them money to spend on others, they ended up showing a significant reduction in blood pressure over six weeks. In contrast, when we gave people money to spend on themselves, their blood pressure didn't change at all. Wow. Were there like, uh, were you guys doing other measurements of the cortisol levels, of the stress hormones, stuff like that as well? In that study, we were primarily focused on on blood pressure, um, and so uh, and I think blood pressure is an interesting one because um, it is such a direct uh, health indicator. So if you have high blood pressure, it puts you at serious risk. And so if we can get that blood pressure down, that can make a real difference. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just like when you are able to give away time, you feel that you are time rich. Similarly, when we're able to give away money. We feel money rich. We feel abundant. 
Yeah, and I think one thing that's really fascinating is that we see these emotional benefits of giving, even in places where people are really struggling to meet their own basic needs. Uh, So we've been able to detect the same emotional benefits of giving that we see in places like the U.S. and Canada, in places like um, South Africa and Uganda, where many of our participants reported that they struggled to have enough food in the past year. Still, even among those very, um, uh, you know, struggling populations, we see this same effect where by people experience this warm glow from giving to others. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think uh, there is a little twist there, like a little more to it. It's not just the fact that we give to others, but we share in that experience with them or we feel, we know that their experiences actually... I, I personally feel just writing a $1,000 check to someone is not going to give me any more or it's going to give me way less joy than me being there when that money is being spent for something that I truly believe in. And that's exactly what we find in our research is that people get a bigger emotional boost from giving to others when they can really see how their generosity is making a difference. And so I think we should kind of be on the lookout for opportunities to give where we'll get to really see how our dollars are making a difference for the person that we're helping. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because the emotional tie-in at that point is way stronger compared to just a thousand dollars given away or even ten dollars given away and you have the example of spread the net right yeah so spread the net is an interesting charity because they uh make their donors a really concrete promise which is that for every ten dollars uh donated to spread the net they will buy one bed net to protect a child from malaria so you know exactly what your ten dollars is doing um in contrast uh you know many other charities like if you give to unicef or something you know it's going to a good cause, but you just have a really vague sense of how your little donation is going to make a difference. And what we find is that when people give money to a charity like Spread the Net, where they really see how their um, dollars are making a difference, they get a big emotional return on investment. For every dollar they give, they feel like some happiness as a result. In contrast, people don't seem to experience much of a boost from giving when they're giving to these big, broad charities where they don't have a lot of insight into to um, how their generosity is making a difference. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think a lot of those peer-to-peer, or not a lot, but Kiva is one of the big ones, a peer-to-peer mm-hmm. lending platform that allows you to know exactly where your money is going. And it's way more satisfying than just giving it out to a pool and not knowing where it went. Right. And I think it's fascinating because from a kind of rational economic perspective, we should all just give money to the big broad cause and, you know, eliminate any sort of transactional costs associated with posting like specific details about who the individuals are. And yet from a psychological perspective, you know, we really want to tap into people's better angels um, by enabling them to experience joy from giving. And to do so, we have to kind of work with human psychology and, and human psychology isn't necessarily so sensitive to these abstract ideas of like, oh, I gave, so it must do some good. What really makes it difference is when you can see that, oh, you know, I helped Susie be able to start her watermelon stand, and now she's going to be able to support her family. Um, that's what provides the emotional reward versus just knowing, well, I did some, I must have done some kind of good for somebody somewhere. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is, this is fascinating. This is a lot of fun. So we covered quite a lot of great ideas in this, uh, in this conversation so far, uh, Elizabeth. Now, as, as I um, <clears throat> As we always say here at 2000 Books, there's no learning without action. So 
I, I, you conduct experiments all the time, but you know we're talking about happiness money or happy money. What are some specific measurable or specific things people can do today or this week to add happiness to their lives by spending money the right way? What would be maybe three things they could do? So one thing I would suggest is think about using $5 today. Pull $5 out of your wallet right now. Set it aside and just look for an opportunity to do something nice for somebody else. So, you know, a coworker's having a rough day, bring them a coffee. Um, a, you know, person behind you in line uh, for, you know, a snack doesn't have enough cash hand it to them and say, hey, it's on me, you know, just look for a little opportunity to do something nice um, for somebody around you with that small amount of money. Um, uh, Another thing I would suggest is the next time you reach for your wallet to make a purchase that you don't absolutely need, something that, you know, you're using a little bit of discretionary income in order to make yourself happy, just stop for a second and ask yourself, will this purchase change the way that I use my time? If the purchase will change the way you use your time, it's probably a good use of money. So if it's something like, um, I don't know, um, buying, paying for a, a house cleaner, that will change the way you use your time. Or even something like, um, you know, buying a pair of skis that will enable you to go skiing or buying a bike that will enable you to bike to work instead of driving all going to change the way you use your time. In contrast, many of our purchases, like buying that, you know, 10th pair of designer heels or, um, you know, buying that slightly nicer upgraded coffee maker or something probably won't have much of an impact on the way you use your time. So if you find the answer to that question is no, this is not going to change the way I use my time. Try putting your money away and buying something else. Nice. Nice. Uh, um, And then ready for number three. Let's do it. All right. So then uh, number three would be um, think about something. Think about an experience that you've always wanted, something that you've always meant to do, but like never quite had the money or the time. Take your existing bank account and create a new uh, new additional account, which most banks will let you do, and give it the name of that experience. Mm. And whenever you can, start putting money into that bank account. And in that way, you'll be getting a little bit closer to having that experience. And every time you put that money away, you'll get a little bit of anticipatory pleasure, a chance to se rejouer about uh, that potential experience. Se rejouer. <laughs> Beautiful. Love it. All right. Uh, Elizabeth, this has been a lot of fun. There's been a lot of learning for myself and for for all our listeners and uh, viewers. So tell our listeners where to find more of what you're doing, where to find the book, and uh, wherever you want us to follow you, find you, all that stuff. Sure. So uh, you can uh, pick up my book, Happy Money, uh, which goes into all of the ideas that we discussed today in a lot more detail um, and elaborates on some of the studies and the ways to use them both for individuals and also for businesses. Um, uh, and uh, Happy Money is available at Amazon. Um, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter um, and you can just Google my name and find my website and all of my uh, publications are uh, available. You can also read. I've summarized a lot of the work that I do in articles that I've written for the New York Times and they're all available on my website as well. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. This was a lot of fun. This was a lot of happiness for me. My pleasure. It was great talking to you. (laughs) Great talking to you as well. So as more and more people find out about what I do, the question I invariably get asked is, Manny, you've read over a thousand books now. 
what is the most important success lesson you've learned from all these books? What is it that separates the winners, the successful from everyone else? So I decided to create a free video course to show you exactly what that number one ingredient of success is and how anyone can develop it. You can get it for free at 2000books.com slash success. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends, do something great with your life. Don't waste it.